Knowing me, knowing Ed you. Shall we call it that? I mean, it's so bad. It's good, isn't it? So, here we are with uh, Sagata Mitra, 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 which I believe um, means friend. Is that it right? It does. Yeah. Yes. No, it's quite apt for a friendly chat. So, thanks for being a guest on our podcast. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Yeah, good. Okay. So, we're going to have a chat. We've got our cups of tea, and we're going to chat about you and your work in education. And for those listening that don't know about you, could you briefly introduce yourself and what you do? Well, I, uh, I work uh, as a professor at uh, Newcastle University in England. Um, my subject is uh, children's education, particularly children and the internet. Children and the internet. And what might people know you for? People that know of you and your work, what are you most famous for? Um, I think more, the people who have heard of me would have heard of me because of an experiment done almost 20 years ago, an experiment that eventually was called the hole in the wall, which involved uh, exposing uh, slum children in New Delhi uh, to a computer connected to the internet with uh, no instructions. Yeah, the hole in the wall experiment and several TED talks, is it three or four? Or yes, after that I think um, I have three TED talks. And a $1 million prize. Uh, and a $1 million prize. And you're credited with more than 25 inventions in the area of cognitive science and educational technology. And lots more that we'll come to later. Uh, but the idea of the podcast is to find out more about you uh, uh, as a person, an interesting character in education, I would say. And what your backstory is, rather than just about your work itself. So I'd like to start by asking about you and your earlier life, before the inventions, before Hole in the Wall, before the $1 million prize. So where did you grow up and where did you go to school? Uh, I was born in Calcutta, India, and I started my school in Calcutta, India. Um, don't quite remember the name of the school. I think it was called Mr. Pyers School. Mr. Pyers? Mr. Pyers School. An individual guy that ran a school. <laughs> well, uh, it was quite famous in those days, I think, and it was a preschool, really. Yeah. And uh, that's about all I remember, is that I used to sort of go to that school, and uh, my mother used to come and pick me up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I, I've met you before, in fact, once before, and I've watched uh, your TED Talks. You seem to have a good sense of humor, I would say, and... I think you might have had like, quite a playful, mischievous streak. Is that fair to say, or am I just getting the wrong? Not impression? really. Not really. I was an only child, and most only children sort of learn how to keep themselves to themselves. Okay. So I was actually rather quiet right. most of my life, um, and it's only in later life when, when I had to speak, because you know people would ask me questions. 
that I began to speak and uh, discovered to my pleasant surprise that not only was I speaking, but I was actually speaking quite a lot, you know, to the extent where the person who had asked the question would often regret having done so. <laughs> so what were you like at school then? Were you quite an angelic, uh, perfect student? I was very angelic. I was chubby. Uh, I knew how to play the system. The teachers would love me. You know, the teachers used to love me. Uh, I used to do very well at everything except sports, okay. which I detested. Um, so uh, I was, uh, you know, regarded very highly. I think. What do you mean by how you say you knew how to play the system? What do you mean by the system? Um, I think very early on I learned how to say what the other person would like to hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How to figure that out and how to say it. Um, I don't know how I learned that, although I have a theory of, I think I may know where it came from. But anyway, I learned how to do this. And uh, that probably helped me a lot throughout my life, actually, because, uh, you know, most people like to hear what they like to hear. And is that because you have um, a natural sort of predisposition to wanting to, to please people, or does it come from somewhere else? Do you want to make people happy? Uh, no, not particularly, but uh, I, I, I want to not lengthen the conversation, and usually any argument would tend to lengthen it. Okay. So I tend to avoid the arguments, unless it is... Uh, a productive argument, an argument, for example, which might lead to a good scientific result or something like okay. that. But, uh, but otherwise, if it's, a, if it's the kind of thing that uh, uh, you know, does, is not likely to lead anywhere, if somebody says, uh, this tea is cold, uh, I would say, yes, that's terrible. Yeah. Hoping that the conversation would end over there. So from a young age, you're, you're, you're thinking about um, being efficient with your time and conversation. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you want to put it that way, that's a very positive way of putting it. Oh, right. Or you could say the path of least resistance. Yeah, least or, 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 or trying to end the conversation as quickly as possible. And so did you enjoy school? I enjoyed school thoroughly. Yeah. Um, I had uh, friends and uh, uh, I went on later to a school in Delhi which is where I finished my schooling. Okay. It was called St. Xavier's High School. Yeah. Um, it was a Jesuit school. Um, so, you, you know, I mean, it probably explains why I'm such a, uh, you know, decent, polite and disciplined kind of chap. Yeah. Uh, is because we were taught how to be decent, polite and disciplined. Yeah. Um, having said that, uh, we did do a lot of things which were not very decent, not very polite, okay, and uh, <laughs> not very disciplined. Um, as all young people should do. Yeah, well, I don't know about that, but we used to be caned for it. Okay. Okay, and after you were caned, you were supposed to get up and say, thank you, father. Wow. Before leaving the room. So you say um, you were taught how to be a decent person. Was that quite formal, or was it just within the culture of the school? Did you... Yeah, I'm taking, exaggerating the point, but you know, people get taught to use which knife and fork for which meal and all that kind of thing. How, how formal was that? 
Uh, some of it was taught, the, the parts which you can't guess, like yeah. which knife or fork. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, did they go that far? Uh, yes, they did actually. We okay. used to have uh, um, uh, retreats. Oh, wow. Okay, which um, uh, we spent in school. I, I was not a boarder, so I, I didn't actually live in school. But we used to have re retreats, and during the retreats, we were actually shown how to use the knife and fork properly and, and that kind of thing. Okay. Um, uh, and, uh, but but uh, the rest of the time, uh, there were other methods. Uh, we, were, uh, we were told if something we were doing was not very proper, yeah. uh, and if, did, if that didn't help much, then we were, of course, beaten. And uh, that was uh, uh, the quickest way that we learned. So that was with a cane? It was uh, with a cane, and sometimes if a cane was hard to come by, then it could be a slap or a punch or a, a wow. smack with a, a ruler, you know, yeah. the meter scale or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, we had only male uh, priests running our school. But once in a while, we would get some nuns over from a, from a girls' convent. The nuns uh, used more subtle methods of uh, persuasion. They would put a, a pencil in between your fingers and then squeeze your hand really hard. Uh, you know, that used to hurt. Actually, that used to hurt more than the cane. Uh, so, but these were highly effective methods by which we learned to be disciplined, polite, and uh, whatever else I told you. And relatively not that long ago either, I mean, which is quite a scary thought. I mean, I've, I've, never, I've never experienced that myself, but it's not really that long ago. It wasn't, it wasn't. It's amazing, isn't it? And uh, I suppose it had a purpose, and, yeah. uh, and it served that purpose. Which is an interesting point, because later on I want to ask you about, you know, the, the future of education and, you know, how rapidly or, or not might we see changes in education. Um, but there's one example anyway from, from your education. Was there a subject that you enjoyed most at school? Yes, actually, I I used to enjoy English literature a lot. I think mainly because of the teacher. I think a lot of the subjects that you really like or dislike are determined not so much by the content as by the teacher who happened to be in charge of that subject. Yeah. So uh, we had a teacher for English literature called uh, his name was Louis Gillard. And uh, he used to teach us, uh, you know, Shakespeare and things like that. And uh, I was very fond of Byron. For some reason, from the very first time when I encountered Byron and his poetry, I, uh, you know, I, I became quite enamored by it. So that was one of my favorites. But my favorites changed with time. Changed uh, later on to math, when it seemed to me that it was a more concise and more silent way of doing poetry than poetry itself. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was expecting you to say science or, or, or maths. Um, and eventually into physics, specifically into physics. But that was later in the uh, yeah. university years. Okay, so um, I was going to ask, is there a particular teacher that you remember? Is there, are there any other names, that, apart from Louis, that stand out? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I remember the... Louis Gillard, of course. I also remember Father Lewicki. Father Lewicki uh, was a fun Jesuit. Okay. You could go up to Father Lewicki and say, Father, 
I really don't believe in God. And Father Liviki would say, oh my goodness, dear me, I think we need to discuss this a little bit further. And we used to have this really good, lovely metaphysical discussions yeah. uh, with Father Liviki. I think uh, much of my much of my thinking about what all this is for, etc., might have come from those years. Yeah. So you left school in, I've done a little bit of a homework, you left school in 1969? 69, yes. With your Indian school certificate? Yes, and it had uh, just been called the Indian school certificate. Uh, up until, I think, 1968, it used to be called the Senior Cambridge Certificate. And um, so th then it became the Indian School Certificate. And Cambridge, because of Cambridge being involved in... Yes, I mean, it was actually signed by the Vice-Chancellor of Cambridge oh. University. <laughs> okay. So, um, before we move on to the next chapter of, of your life, when you think back to your early days, do any particular songs or types of music or events in the news, books, stand out to you? I mean, films, were you watching films at that era? Well, uh, you know, it's, it's not an easy question to answer because these likings and indeed these dislikes uh, spread over time, so they're different at different points in time. Yeah. So there are many answers to the question, but uh, offhand, I already mentioned one from my youth, which was the poetry of Byron. Yeah. Uh, I remember Stanley Kubrick's film, 2001, Space Odyssey, yeah. which uh, later on I realized may actually have affected the hole in the wall experiment. Uh, it's a strange story, but uh, I remember that one. Um, books, because I was quite a voracious reader. In those days, back in my school days, my favorite used to be uh, P.G. Woodhouse. Yeah. Uh, he must have read everything that he's ever written. Uh, Agatha Christie, um, uh, that sort of thing, Conan Doyle, and, and so on. Oh, really? I'm a big fan. Well, of Sherlock Holmes, I've read all the yeah, Sherlock Holmes stories. Genius, actually. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I used to like all of that. But then as I, as I grew up, those things changed to other books, other films, other yeah. music, and so on. Okay. And do you have, um, can you remember, a, when you went to music, do you remember having a, favorite song of that sort of time, or is that too hard to recall? No, no, not at all. Uh, those were tumultuous times for music. I remember I was 16 in 1968, and 17 in 1969. So for those of you who remember a song called The Summer of 69, that was when I was 17 years old. So I thoroughly enjoyed The Summer of 69. Um, uh, I think I met my wife then my wife-to-be in that year. And uh, I do believe that uh, Sergeant Peppers was released in that year, or near, near about. So, but anyhow, so 67 onwards, the Beatles yeah. had come onto the scene. Okay. So, uh, so I've actually lived through that, so, and during my adolescent years. Yeah. So uh, we were all you know, very deeply affected by the music of the Beatles. Uh, our parents did not understand that music at all. Um, and then we set about changing the world. 
So, you know, we start, the men started growing their hair long. Uh, the women started wearing trousers. Goodness me! <laughs> and, and then uh, we had books written by women about women. You know, Erica Young and, and so on and so forth. Uh, I don't know if those books are read anymore, but we were all highly affected by it. Um, feminism started. Uh, alternative realities, uh, virtual worlds, uh, not using digital technology which didn't exist, but using LSD. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the world was changing in 1969 for, for all of us. And uh, Sounds think, like an amazing time. Oh yeah, I think all of us are really shaped by that time. Yeah. Today, of course, we are all lumped together into one generation, unfortunately called the baby boomers. Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine um, another generation like, like that to, to come through, to have so much change. Well, of course there's change and it feels rapid, but to have so much change and to have to... I don't know, there's something nice, I think, about not being connected and the lack of technology at that time. And it was... It was about listening to music, it was about listening to, to quite powerful lyrics and reading books. Yes, it was. It was uh, a revolution of its own time, but uh, I have no doubt actually that we are probably on the brink of another one. There is a generation now who will probably go through changes which will make the changes of my time seem minuscule in comparison. Well, we're going to try and um, play the songs, one of the songs that you've mentioned there. Um, I know which song for this one. Which one? I Am The Walrus.
So, after school, what did you do? Did you know what you wanted to do? I think a lot of the decision for my generation was uh, affected by our parents. Um, not dictated, but affected. So it would be suggestions and so on and so forth. Strong suggestions. Uh, well, strong or, 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 or reasonable. For example, my father was uh, one of the first psychoanalysts in India, uh, a Freudian. Um, uh, Freud used physics as his model and he said, you know, we can study the human mind the way physicists study the world. Um, my mother uh, said, uh, whatever it is you do, I don't think you should be a psychoanalyst. Um, Physics sounds like a far enough away subject <laughs> and so, so between the two parents I sort of headed towards physics. In any case, I liked physics a lot and I liked physics because, uh, because of what had happened to it in 1910 or 1920 when, uh, when physics, the most precise science of them all, suddenly faced this ocean of uncertainty where we didn't know if anything existed at all or not and uh, they actually managed to solve many of those mysteries uh, without breaking the subject up. Uh, I love that happening to a subject. Yeah and so you, you, um, you did your PhD in was it solid state physics? I did my PhD in theoretical solid state physics um, basically on, uh, on a particle called an exciton. An exciton is a very strange particle. It's an electron and a hole working together as one single entity. And you might say, and what is a hole? Well, a hole is the absence of an electron. So an electron and its own absence working together as a single particle is an exciton. Now isn't that crystal clear? Yeah, crystal, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I loved excitons and 
I used to study how excitons move through organic solids and then break up if they encounter a metal electrode and burst into electricity. Wow. Sounds very exciting. But you've, I mean, tell us about your first job and talk us through how you went from, from physics and solid state physics. Because you, you moved into education and, and um, cognitive science as well. Well, you know, it, my, my progression from the end of school through to the end of university when I got my PhD was actually a, a melee or a milieu or whatever you want to yeah, call it. Yeah. Uh, it was a cloud of, uh, of quantum physics, mind-altering chemicals, <laughs> uh, uh, girlfriends, uh, rock music, um, and mathematics. Uh, you know, that sounds like a film, like a really good film <laughs> somewhere in there. Yeah, yeah well, that was... So flipping back and forth between all of this and, uh, you know, seeing one in the other, if that makes any sense, I mean, I would be, I would be listening to a, a, a piece of Bach and, and suddenly an equation, one of the equations I really hated in theoretical physics was suddenly pop up in front of me and I say, oh my God, this man is actually singing it, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. So, um, I also had uh, long hair, which most of us did, and uh, it used to uh, cause psychological problems in our mothers, who, uh, you know, referred to the long hair and the necessity to cut it uh, very frequently. Uh, when I say very, I really mean it. Um, so, there was that side of life, of a, of a generation which didn't quite know who these creatures were. Yeah. Yeah, and... Uh, I wish I'd been there. Yeah, yeah, you would have enjoyed yourself. I mean, you would have enjoyed listening to conversations between myself and my mother. My mother saying uh, things like, uh, you really should come and have your dinner. And I would say, but the second derivative isn't working out. And she would say, the second derivative, uh, you mean, do you need a digestive? So I would say, no, damn it, second derivative, you know, the del 2 psi by del t squared. And my mother would say, I don't know, I don't think you've had the right things to smoke. <laughs> <laughs> Your dinner's getting cold, come and sit down. <laughs> Something like that. So she suspected what was going on, but none of them really knew. And uh, they were scared. They were really scared, just as scared as this generation is of the digital reality that's about to descend on us, on our children. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, uh, why I'm telling you this is because I don't feel scared about what's going to happen next in AI and in digital reality and so on. And I don't feel scared because I was an adolescent from 1969 and I know it isn't half as scary as it sounds. Yeah. But perhaps there were more sort of recreational things that sort of helped you through those times. Oh, well, there was. But, uh, but, you know, strangely enough, my recreation was books and music and that sort of thing. Uh, long conversations. Yeah. Um, uh, and just sitting around by myself. Wow. So, what was your first job? 
Um, after I finished my PhD, I um, got my first job. My first job was with a computer company. You know, desktop computers had just about been invented then. So this was, uh, I had my PhD in 1978 and then in 79 I joined my first job and uh, that was with a computer company to write computer programs in Fortran 4 because us physicists were the only people who knew how to do that. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So I was writing all these, uh, you know, programs. And, uh, and then they said, my goodness, you have a PhD as well, so you should be teaching other people how to write programs. So I got to teaching people how to write computer programs. And uh, this didn't last for very long. I was very good at my job. But what happened was that uh, I got a, a, a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Vienna in Austria. Uh, to work on batteries. Batteries? Yes. Zinc, chlorine, batteries. Mainly because uh, I had been working on zinc, chlorine batteries for a while at the Indian Institute of Technology. And I got this postdoctoral fellowship and I applied for a visa. And this Austrian man in the Austrian embassy in New Delhi said, what on earth do you want to go to Vienna for? So I said, it sounds like a good place. And he said, no, it's the same as any other city, you know, pavements and trams. And I said, I like pavements and trams. And that's how I got to Vienna. And had you traveled much before then? No, this was my first time out of India. So I landed up in Vienna and... Uh, With long hair still at this time? Long this hair, okay. very long hair. And uh, I had all the wrong flights, so by the time I got into Vienna, it was just about midnight. Um, and I had no money, I had very little money. In those days, Indians traveling abroad were allowed to encash uh, six dollars, six US dollars. So I had the equivalent of six US dollars in Viennese currency of that time, which were shillings. So I went to a taxi and I said, uh, you know, can you take me to a hotel? Because the, the, the student accommodation I was in wouldn't let me in, obviously at midnight, there was nobody there. So I said, can you take me to a really cheap hotel? Something that cost like three dollars. But then this was, <laughs> but then this was 1980. Uh, so uh, the taxi fellow said, do you have, uh, he said to, something to me in German. And I couldn't, I didn't know what he was saying. However, I had taken the precaution, actually my mother had taken the precaution of send, sending me to a German class for a couple of weeks. So I remember I knew only one sentence which I could construct by myself. It was, ich möchte nur ein Bett, which means I need only a bed. And the taxi, and the taxi man, uh, the Austrian, he took a deep breath and he squared his shoulders and he said, Ich probiere, which means, and I shall provide. <laughs> that sounds really scary to me. Where did he take you? He took me to what turned out to be the red light area. That's the only place where you could get a room for three dollars because you were supposed to spend the rest of your money on other things. Um, uh, I, of course, didn't have any other money. 
<laughs> the taxi fellow was wonderful. He just took a dollar off me for the ride and I went into this hotel. I stayed the night. The next day I went off to Turkenstrasse, which is where my uh, student accommodation was and everything was fine. Then I got my scholarship money and, you know, I was a rich bloke. I could actually drink about two beers a night. Wow. And from Vienna, um, you went back to, to Delhi at some point? In Vienna, yes. In Vienna, I made a new model for zinc chlorine batteries and I published it. Much to the surprise of my Viennese supervisor as well as the professors at IIT, they still, apparently it was a big deal to, to have what's called a single author publication in a peer-reviewed journal. Uh, particularly if you are a fresh PhD, you're supposed to be a professor and all that to publish. But well, they took my paper and they published it, so in a journal called the Journal of Power Sources, where it still resides and it describes how to make a zinc chlorine battery. Um, so I came back to Delhi um, because uh, my wife was expecting our son. Oh, you were married at this point? Yes, I was married at, uh, just after I finished my PhD in 78. I married uh, this girl that I had met in 1969. In the summer of 69. Summer of 69 yeah. <laughs> so, well, she was pregnant, and uh, I, you know, I had to come back because my, of course. you know, the baby would be born. So I came back from Vienna. Uh, the you baby became was a father, born. and I became a father, and the baby was born, and uh, it looked like a baby. Like, so it looked like Winston Churchill, which apparently is what all babies look <laughs> yeah, like. When all born. babies look like Winston. <laughs> okay. I remember that. That's a good one. <laughs> And from there, you went on to... Um... Um, uh, so then, I, uh, I joined, uh, for a year, I joined the Indian Institute of Technology uh, as a research associate and continued working on uh, batteries. Yeah. Um, and after that, I uh, got invited to join uh, NIIT. Which I'm guessing is quite a prestigious organization to... Well, NIIT is a strange organization, you know, it has a strange history. Well, not a strange organization, it's a brilliant organization with a strange history. Yeah. Uh, Indira Gandhi was the Prime Minister of India. She was a socialist. You know, the world at that time was uh, were dominated by three women. Uh, Indira Gandhi of India, uh, Maggie Thatcher of Britain yeah. and Golda Meir of Israel. And, uh, you know, what women they were. <laughs> so, we used to all quiver at the sight. <laughs> so, Indira Gandhi decided to throw out all multinationals out of India. She, th she threw out Coca-Cola. Then she threw out IBM. And India didn't have any computers anymore. A young uh, entrepreneur from uh, IIT, Indian Institute of Technology, decided that he would build computers. And he made a company called Hindustan Computers Limited, HCL, and uh, hired young Indians as the marketing people. One of them was uh, Rajendra Pawar, his star marketing man, an electrical engineer selling little microcomputers for HCL. Rajendra Pawar got this brilliant idea that if only many people knew how to use a computer, then more computers would sell. So he decided that he would make a school that teaches people how to use computers. 
It would be called the National Institute of Information Technology or NIIT. He needed someone who can teach people how to use computers. And someone told him there's this guy called <laughs> Sugata who can do that quite well. So he hired me. And in uh, 1982, I think, I joined him and I made his course materials and I did all sorts of things. I had no idea of how to teach people how to use computers. So in the absence of any pedagogical knowledge of my own, the only thing I could think of was to tell the students, uh, why don't you just figure it out for yourself, you know, and leave me alone. Ah, yeah, there's been a theme here, this <laughs> yeah, is where it stops. Yeah, there's been a theme But then destiny moved in again, and in 1983 I left NIIT because I got uh, an offer from a newspaper called The Patriot. The Patriot was going to change its photo typesetting systems. Uh, no, sorry, The Patriot was going to change its typesetting systems, which was hot metal in those days, for whoever understands that, into photo typesetting, which basically means typing stuff out on a computer and then printing it out on film, which would then become a plate and the plate would become the newspaper. Yeah. yeah. So, but nobody knew how photo typesetters worked and nobody knew anything about computers. So I got called in, it was 1983. And I was given one year to convert the Patriot from hot metal to digital. Um, so I started traveling um, and reading. And then the chairman of our newspaper got a call from Mrs. Gandhi, of all people. Mrs. Gandhi said, you know, there's a paper called the International Herald Tribune, which publishes simultaneously from many countries. I think India should have a paper like that. Do you have an engineer of some sort who can figure out how to do this? My chairman, a very famous lady called Aruna Asapali, said, yes, we have a young man. He works in a very strange position. I think he is a computer. So, we can send our computer to figure out how the Herald Tribune is produced. So, I got a round-the-world ticket. Wow. And I went to Los Angeles, and I went to Sydney, and I went all over the blooming place uh, looking at phototypesetting equipment and how to connect telephones, uh, how to connect computers with telephones to each other. And I came back and I bought all this stuff and I converted the Patriot into a newspaper that could go international. So this is the India's first local area network? Local area network based newspaper system that could communicate with other systems. And I got it in time and on budget. I got it, I think around, uh, I got it working around October of 1984. And uh, I knew Mrs. Gandhi would be very interested. By then she was saying something rather strange. She was saying, you know, there are people who don't like me and I need to be able to tell the whole world who these people are. So I need that newspaper rather quickly. Well, we had the newspaper. The Patriot was ready. I submitted a proposal 
on how one could make it international. Next day morning I woke up and there was an eerie silence in the city of New Delhi. Uh, my mother was there with us in Delhi. And I said, hey, what's this? And my mother said, Mrs. Gandhi has just been killed. So that was the end of my international newspaper. Wow. You could have been on, you could, she could have taken you with you, I guess. <laughs> yes, or something. I don't know what, till today, what is it that she wanted to say? Yeah. That she wanted everyone in the world to hear. Wow. But she didn't get the chance to say it. And you went on, um, I mean, that's obviously made a bit of a name for yourself, presumably, and... Um, a few other jobs in between, but ended up as chief scientist at NIIT. Um, yes, actually, there was, there was a after after this uh, modernization, so to speak, of, of Patriot. I was the head of their technology, and I didn't have much to do because you know I had done my job and everything was working fine. And in those days, even then, was the first response to a problem. Have you tried turning it off and off and back on again? Oh, yes. Oh, okay. Oh, 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 so it's oh, been oh, around forever. Have, yes. Have you tried uh, kicking it? Yeah. <laughs> so, so I had, didn't have much to do. So I used to fool around with the computers in the typesetting part of the system when they were free. Because obviously I was allowed to do anything I wanted. I, mean, yeah, I was the head of the place. Yeah. And I started noticing that I could write a program that would write, you know, somebody's name or address or whatever and print it out on film. I mean, no big deal, but uh, I mean, I could actually program it so that after that I could continuously feed in names and it would continuously print out the names one after the other. In those days, in order to print out a name, you had to give a series of commands. So what I had done was I encapsulated all the commands into what would today be called an app, yeah. which would print the names one after the other. Three buildings away from our building was a building where the billing for Delhi telephones used to happen. I had a friend there because he was also from IITs. So I once told him that, uh, you know, I have this, this program. Maybe it can help you to do billing. And he said, no, hang on, hang on. It's not billing. Do you know how the telephone directory is produced? I said, no. He said, we take the billing database, we print out all the names and addresses and phone numbers, we give it to a printer who then typesets the whole thing and then it's printed out. What? And I said, what if the typesetter could, the typesetting machine could talk to the billing machine? And he said, let's do it. Out of his window, we poked out a telephone wire and I took it across <laughs> to my building. <laughs> And I connected the typesetting machine. I remember it very clearly. I connected the typesetter one morning. And I still remember uh, the operator who used to take out the output from the filmmaking machine. He came running in and they used to call me Mitra Saab. I said, Mitra Saab, this machine is producing the Delhi telephone directory by itself. Yeah. So I said, oh, is that what it's doing? Well, that's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah. So this is like the yellow pages of... Yeah. Not yet the yellow pages. Okay. It was just the phone directory. Right. We got the order for the phone directory 
at which point in time I came to know of the yellow pages. Yeah. And I said, well, I can program the yellow pages as well. And it turned out I couldn't. I had to buy the software from the United States. Back I went to the United States and I talked to a company that I shall not name. And uh, they said, it's just a million dollars, the software. And I said, okay, that sounds reasonable to me. But in order to buy a million dollars worth of software, I need to know what exactly the software does. So can you give me all the user manuals for the software? It turned out to be seven volumes of user manuals on how to produce yellow pages. And they gave it to you? They gave it to me because a million dollar order can't be placed if you don't know what you're buying. I took it back to India. I assembled a team of 14 programmers and we reverse engineered those 17 manuals in three months time to work on a local area network and we had our yellow page making system. Wow. <laughs> so how much did it cost you then? In... It cost those 14 guys salary, that's about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and they so, never got their order. Yeah, in fact, I made an offer to them if they would like to buy it from us because, <laughs> because this one worked on local area networks. <laughs> so um, uh, then uh, we got the orders to produce the telephone directory and the yellow pages for Delhi, for Bombay, for Madras, for, for Bangalore, for, for a whole lot of cities in India. Um, so I produced the first yellow pages in the Indian subcontinent and later in Bangladesh. So we've gone from physics, batteries, programming, um, local area networks, publishing, and then talk us through to how, how did the hole in the wall experiment come around? Well, once the yellow page industry settled down and it was a, you know, millions and millions of dollars worth of industry, I, as a reward to me, I was made into the director of their publishing systems and paid a lot of money. And I realized that now I no longer had to write any programs. I had to only direct other people to write programs. And I found that an intensely boring job. So I left. And I went back to NIIT and I set up their research and development facility. Because in a research and development facility, even the senior people have to actually do things. So that's how uh, I went back to my next job. Uh, these were the days when computers were beginning to speak and show photographs. It was called multimedia. So I switched from uh, yellow pages to multimedia and I still have a little, uh, a little article in an Indian magazine which did an interview similar to the one you're hearing now about all these various things that I bumped around from, batteries to physics to this to that and the other thing. And, the, and the, the title they gave to this article under my name was The Multimedia Man. <laughs> so, you got a nickname. Yeah, I got a nickname. So anyway, um, so those were heady days of multimedia. I was building a program which would join one program to another program. And uh, uh, we, it's only later that I discovered that this method is called hyperlinking. Yeah. And it would one day make... Uh, rather important development in the world called the internet. Wow. Well, I still have a paper which says that it is possible to hyperlink computers with each other. So uh, anyway, so I worked on all of that and uh, uh, in the middle of doing all of this, uh, I bought a PC for myself. And when I bought a PC for myself, I 
brought it home and noticed that uh, my son, who was not very old at that time, six or seven or something, was doing all sorts of things on it. I mean, nowadays we are all very used to children doing yeah. that. Then I noticed that my friends who had bought similar PCs also had children who were doing all sorts of funny things with it. That's the time when I thought of the slum children in Delhi. And I said, is there any reason to believe that they wouldn't do these fun things also if only they had a computer? So I decided to give them a computer. And uh, there's no place in a slum where you can put a computer. So I made a hole in the boundary wall between my office and the slum. Did you have to convince anyone? Did you have to convince your employer to do this? Or were you just senior enough by that point that you had a budget and you had the resource you were no, just able to do? No, no. It brings us back to a character that has appeared in this program earlier. Rajendra Singh Pawar, the chairman of NIIT, my friend from IIT, who had seen through these years... Uh, How your ideas turn out to be okay. ...that they do all sorts of crazy things. And uh, until today, I think he is a firm believer in the fact that uh, I should be left alone. So when I proposed to him that it won't cost very much, it will cost about $1,000 to do this, put a computer, and he said, for what? And he said, you know, for the children on the other side of the wall. And he said, who's going to teach them how to use it? Because you remember those days, yeah, people yeah. had to be taught. And I said, no, I, I, nobody's going to teach them. I just want to see what happens. And uh, he said, okay, I don't know why. Yeah, <laughs> I trust you. <laughs> yeah. And that's how the hole in the wall happened. Um, we're going to pause at this moment. Um, are there any other strong memories that you have of, of, of that time from, from leaving school up to, to the hole in the wall point there? As you're developing any musical tastes or any other films? Yeah, well, I used to play the guitar um, because uh, in those days... Uh, Playing the guitar and smoking were two uh, acceptable ways for attracting young women. Uh, so naturally, I, you know, did both. Yeah. Um, it worked to a large extent, I must confess. Uh, so apart from that, I remember 2001, watching it and I think what stuck in my mind, in my 17-year-old mind at that time, was that if people, if people have a question to which no one knows the answer, then all of humanity seems to find nothing better to do than to try and answer that question. We, homo sapiens, we are built that way. We, we want to find the unknown. Yeah. And that's what it seemed uh, 2001 was all about. Later on, I met Arthur C. Clarke many, many years later. And uh, he, uh, he, he had instinctively understood that. He, he watched the films of, uh, film clips of The Hole in the Wall. And he turned to me and said, did you watch 2001? He said, <laughs> and I said, yes, sir, I did. <laughs> and do you have a, is there another song, a favorite song of that time? Uh, between my school and the hole in the wall. Yes. You had been a fan of the Beatles, did that evolve? No, we, no, we, they, were, they, they, they. we were Rolling Stones man as well. I wasn't a Rolling no. Stones man at all. I wasn't an Elvis man at all. 
David but, Bowie? Uh, no, but the, the song which did stick in my mind in those, during those years, which I'm sure affected many, many things later, was a song called The Days of Future Past. And uh, it's by, you know, what's the, what's the group that made the song called Nights in White Satin? Oh, you know what I mean. I know, yeah, I know the song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd have to look it up. Yeah, just just look it up. I mean, it's. it's a, I think it's Alan Parsons' project, or, or or the Moody Blues, one or the other. I, I I don't know. But these were my favorite groups: Alan Parsons' project, Moody Blues, and while on the topic, and which may figure later on, the the song that I found completely autobiographical of me was a song by Chris Christopherson called "The Pilgrim." I started writing this song about. Chris Gantry, end up writing about Dennis Hopper and Johnny Cash and Norman, Norbert, Funky Donnie Fritt, Billy Swan, Bobby Newworth, Jerry Jeff Walker, and Paul Siebel. Ramblin' Jack Elliott had a lot to do with it. See him wasted on the sidewalk In his jacket and his jeans Wearing yesterday's misfortunes like a smile Once he had a future full of money, love and dreams Would he spend like they was going out of style And he keeps right on a change For the better or the worse Searching for a shrine he's never found Never knowing if believing is a blessing or a curse For if the going up was worth the coming down He's a poet and he's a picker He's a prophet and he's a pusher He's a pilgrim and a preacher And a problem when he's stoned He's a walking contradiction Partly truth and partly fiction Taking every wrong direction On his lonely way back home He has tasted good and evil In your bedrooms and your bars And he's trading in tomorrow for today Running from his devil's lord Reaching for the stars Losing all the love along the way But if this world keeps right on turning For the better or the worse And all he ever gets is older and around From the rocking of the cradle To the rolling of the hearse Going up was worth coming down He's a poet and he's a picker He's a prophet and he's a pusher He's a pilgrim and a preacher And a problem when he's stoned He's a walking contradiction Partly truth and partly fiction Taking every wrong direction On his lonely way back home a lot of wrong directions on that lonely way back home. So, Sigata, would you say that the, the hole in the wall changed your life? 
with that, that experiment and what came after that experiment? Has it changed your life? Yes, it did. I mean, it sort of physically changed my life. Um, I, I want to make that distinction that if you, if you say, was it a, a mind-changing thing? Uh, no. But it was a life-changing yeah. uh, event. I mean, it brought you to Newcastle. It doesn't get any better than that, does it? Yeah, well, it brought me to Newcastle. Yeah. And it inspired the film, Slumdog Millionaire? Yes, which so was say, a surprise, yeah. yes. I don't quite understand, I don't quite make the leap between the experiment and, and the film necessarily. I, I don't either. In fact, I've written about it. Uh, when, uh, when Vikas Swaroop, the author of the book Q&A, which became the film, Slumdog Millionaire, when he was being interviewed by BBC, they asked him, what, what made you write a book like this? And he said, uh, the hole in the wall experiment. And I wrote to Vikas after that, saying, you know, I'm very pleasantly surprised to hear this, but is this true? And, and he wrote back saying, yes, I was deeply affected by that experiment. And I thought to myself, but I don't see much of a connection. And uh, I, uh, at that time, I got interviewed by the Guardian newspaper. And uh, they said, aren't you proud that, you know, you've inspired this film, Oscar-winning film? And I said, well, I'm happy, but I'm, I'm puzzled because uh, my idea was not that children exposed to a computer in a wall would start winning million-dollar prizes. I would be more happy if uh, children exposed to a computer in the wall would uh, become a professor one day, get a PhD, something like that. Well, the result of all this was that The Guardian published this article and the title of the article was, with a big picture of me, the title of the article was Slumdog Professor. <laughs> I've not read that one in my research. I'll have to revisit that one. So, and this experiment and, and what came after, that led to the TED Prize, is that right? So, did you get that prize for, for that experiment? or? Um, no, the TED Prize doesn't work like that, actually. Um, the TED Prize uh, is, is, a, is through a process of nomination. So your name gets nominated. My name got nominated by a journalist uh, from The Guardian, as well as a school teacher uh, who formed a part of uh, another little innovation called the Granny Cloud, yeah. um, and, and by several other people. And then I had to make an application saying, what would I do if I had a million dollars? What would be my wish? And it's like writing a research proposal, really. And I did all of that. And then uh, you have to name some referees, and then Ted calls up those referees, and so on. At that time, something else had happened in my life, which is that I got invited for a visiting professorship at the MIT Media Lab in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts by no less than Professor Nicholas Negroponte, the man who actually had started the Media Lab. Um, so it was, uh, I wrote that little proposal for Ted uh, sitting at the MIT Media Lab, which is, you know, a kind of a magical place to write a proposal. You can, you can write anything sitting in the Media Lab. It has yeah, no ceiling. Yeah. yeah. So um, uh, that's how I got the prize. 
And um, <coughs> sorry, maybe if we're switching around here, how did you, the move to Newcastle come about? Ah, the move to Newcastle was because of uh, my my friend uh, Professor James Tooley. James Tooley was uh, uh, James Tooley had received a, a fairly large research grant, uh, basically to do with uh, low cost private schooling in India. That's right. Yeah. And he wanted something innovative done over there. So he called me and he said, you know, you're the guy who should be doing this sort of thing. Um, I was at a stage in my life where my son uh, had just gotten his first job. So he was finally financially independent. Um, we have only one son and it was a very small, I have a very small family, it's myself, my wife and one son. So when the son became independent and I got this offer through Newcastle University, then my wife and I, we decided, well, this is just about the one time in our lives when it doesn't really matter. We can just pack our bags and go anywhere. Yeah. And we so left. You first came up? And we came to Newcastle. And how have you um, come to terms with the accent yet? Ah, yes. Uh, <coughs> I, yeah, I can understand most of it. And I uh, also think the Geordies are uh, friendly people. You can actually go and uh, tell a Geordie, uh, by the way, uh, I don't understand a word of what you're saying. And he'll just laugh and then he starts talking in normal English. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the hole in the wall and, and the work that comes after that um, and the, the work for the university, that led to Seoul or was, was Seoul the, the proposal that you were making? Around the time when Slumdog Millionaire was released worldwide, I was working with a few schools in Gateshead, uh, you know, across the time from Newcastle. Um, uh, it's a relatively economically depressed area of England and uh, this wonderful school teacher Emma Crawley had taken me to these schools because she had read about the hole in the wall and we were trying to do the hole in the wall in Gateshead not in the format in which it was done in Delhi because you can't do anything outdoors in England because of the weather yeah. uh, we were doing the hole in the wall inside the classroom and I think it's a little known fact, but what is now called the soul, the self-organized learning environment, is actually the hole in the wall done inside a classroom. Okay. And so with, with soul, the self-organized learning environment, um, is there a claim that you're making with that? Is it offered as an alternative to the current approach to teaching and learning? Uh, or is it something that you like to see utilised alongside the current education system? Or are you just being provocative? And are you trying to nudge people's thinking along when it comes to how we educate young people? Well, you know, the hole in the wall has also evolved over time to, to become somewhat different from what it was to start with. To start with, the hole in the wall was simply to see if children can learn how to operate a computer and the internet by themselves. It was a big deal in 1999 because the current assumption of that time was that you need to be taught how to use it. So I disproved that. But then, once they did learn how to use computers and the internet, they started doing other more interesting things. And what would they do with it? Well, they started answering questions for themselves. And then I realized that 
this is very cool because they're actually learning things by themselves in groups. Uh, triggered off only with an interesting question of any kind. And that's the experiment we tried in Gateshead. And it worked even better in Gateshead because the children obviously speak English as their native language. So their reading comprehensions were higher. I started making the questions harder and harder and discovered that there's almost no limit to how hard the question can be. Uh, there, there's an actual published experiment uh, done in India called the Kali Kuppam experiment where I showed that there apparently is no limit. So here's this limitless pedagogical method which enables children to learn almost anything by themselves uh, which seems to be doing the job of a teacher. Is it doing the job exactly as a teacher would do it? Not at all. So there were really two different things. Yeah. What Emma Crawley was able to do was to integrate it into school practice and to use this method as a, one of the things that she can use in a classroom. Yeah, one of the tools. <coughs> so, in a way, the hole in the wall's entire nature changed from being a sort of the wild west of pedagogy uh, to becoming uh, a tool in the classroom. So today it can be used as either. Okay, because it seems to me, I've mentioned this before, it seems to incorporate facets of metacognition, learning to learn, uh, philosophy for children, depending on the type of question being asked, and an element of peer tutoring where you see um, some children supporting other children uh, to learn. All, all of which those, those individual things themselves are, have been proven to be quite effective. But is, is, soul, is it about uh, developing confidence in children? Is it about developing skills? Or is it about the learning itself? Do you, do you define it narrowly? Or? I do. And uh, the answer, ironically, lies inside my old subject, physics, and not inside education as such. The hole in the wall eventually is an example of a self-organizing system. And uh, nature is full of them. Almost everything in nature is self-organizing. The way a flower forms, or, or anything, or us, homo sapiens. Uh, you know, methane, ammonia, carbon, mixed up together a couple of billion years and we appear, <laughs> okay? Spontaneous order out of chaos. Uh, the new idea, I think, is that spontaneous order out of chaos can actually be created within an ordered environment such as a school and will form an effective alternative pedagogical method. Um, to do what? to teach things that a teacher could have taught, but I think even more fascinatingly, to teach something that the teacher doesn't know herself. To teach things that perhaps no one knows. Um, it is entirely a 21st century uh, phenomenon. Without the internet, the soul doesn't exist. Mm. But what is the soul? I think it's emergent, spontaneous order out of chaos, 
created by groups of children immersed in an ocean of information. And are you saying it is just complementary to the, the current um, form and structure of... It of can be. It, it can be, be complementary. It can supplement if you need to. Uh, and in those areas where you have neither schools nor teachers, it provides an alternative education all by itself. Yeah. Because you have some pretty big ideas um, that people might find a little unnerving, I suppose. You, you've talked about... Um, uh, changing how, how we learn or, or the structure or you've challenged the kind of the, the schooling system and when I think about this myself I do think well I just don't see how it's going to happen but then when I ask myself the question will schooling be the same in 100 years time maybe it will have some of the characteristics of it now what will it be like in 200 years time it's obviously going to change at some point isn't it yeah and as I suppose what, what you've done, what you're doing, is, is one way of looking at how it might be organized. Yes, and uh, what is, I think, even more evident is that whatever happens to school, assessment has to change, examinations. Why? Because today you can stop a child from carrying the internet into the examination room by saying, you know, don't bring your phone. Tomorrow you're going to say, don't bring your phone and don't bring your watch. But what are we going to do two years later, short of saying, go through that MRI scanner before you enter? So we can't stop the internet from entering the examination room. And when it does, it will destroy the examination system because, you know, an exam where you have access to the internet, yeah. the questions have to be vitally different from the kind of exam questions we have today. And do you have... Um you, you come across challenge and criticism of, of your work. Um, is, is, the, is the soul, do you see it as something that can be um, compared to how we educate young people these days? And is that something we'd have to look at it over a longitudinal study? Um, can, can you compare the effectiveness of one with the other? No, I don't think we can. I used to think we can, but we can't because of a, of a peculiar nature of our times. You see, in a sense, you cannot do longitudinal studies anymore because a longitudinal study kind of assumes that the world in which it is being done is constant. So, by definition, in our times, a longitudinal study cannot be done because the world would have changed by then as well. So what uh, can we compare? Well, we could compare the quantum of learning from a regular taught session versus a soul. It won't give you anything exciting. In fact, the soul might even lose out. But what we mustn't do is to therefore say that the soul is worse than the classroom because that assumes that what is being taught in the classroom will remain as meaningful over a period of time as it was on the day on which it was taught, which is no longer true anymore. As soon as you say that the content or the, the knowledge quantum of our times is changing with time itself, there is no way to teach it anymore except to do a soul. So a soul can be used to teach things that are not known now. 
So uh, I, I don't know if, if, if this makes sense, but um, you cannot quite equate or, or measure a soul versus a classroom method. It's like trying to uh, measure the relative effectiveness of a horse-drawn carriage against an automobile. Now, on the one hand, the automobile makes, uh, you know, goes faster than the horse. On the other hand, it makes much more horrible noise than the, than the horse-drawn cart did. Uh, people might argue it, it looks a lot worse, it smells a lot worse, and so on. Uh, in the end, you can't compare them because they they're two different things you know so so also when you take a soul and you take traditional schooling they, their outcomes uh, are not meant for the same assessment result which is why i keep coming back to assessment to say that uh, you can answer the answer to the question uh, how long did the Mughal Empire last in India? Could be a traditional examination question. You either know the answer or you don't. If you have Google, you can probably find it in a couple of seconds. So giving you the internet doesn't make any sense if that question is any good. But if I change the question to something that the traditional system perhaps cannot answer properly, if I change the question to, why did the Mughals come to India? Now, the soul will produce a better result than the taught classroom will. It's our decision which type of question we want to ask. The soul appeals to the more metaphysical, the deeper questions. The factual stuff uh, should be left with the old system. If it is required at all. I think, yeah, there's a whole other podcast debate there potentially on the importance of knowledge and, uh, yeah. uh, you know, you look at Daniel T. Willingham's book, Why Don't Students Like School? I don't know if you've read that, but there's um, certainly arguments uh, for the, the, the need for knowledge there. So I'm going to ask you one final question. Um, the big question, perhaps you might pose it to a, a group of students as part of a soul experiment, but um, if you were in charge of the education system, let's say in England, for a day and you could implement one policy or one, make one change to the system itself to improve education for young people, what would it be? <laughs> I, I think it could be a very simple administrative decision. Allow the students to use their smartphones connected to the internet whenever and wherever they want. Okay. If you think about it, it will change everything in the education system. Everything from teaching, from learning, from examinations, uh, to what you know, to what you don't know, to what you should know, to what you should not know. Yeah. Uh, the whole shebang. It's, that's the kind of thing I was expecting. Um, a little bit anarchic that would shake things up a little bit. Um, so thank you very much for, for the chat and being so open to it. Uh, a random request from someone that you hardly know to s sit down and talk about this. And um, finally, what, what last song might we add to this in a Desert Island disc style? What could we play out? A favourite song of yours? I think this is where you should play Days of Future Past 
but uh, just to help you find the right place, uh, the bit of lyric which I think will end very well at this point goes something like this. I think it says, I'm, I'm going by memory, cold-hearted orb reveals the night, removes the colors from your sight. Red is gray in yellow light, but we decide what is right and what is an illusion. Breathe deep the gathering gloom. Watch lights fade from every room. Bedsitter people look back and lament another day's useless energies spent. Impassioned lovers wrestle as one. Lonely man cries for love and has none. New mother picks up and suckles her son. Senior citizens wish they were young. Cold-hearted orb that rules the night. Removes the colors from our sight. Red is gray and yellow-white. But we decide which is right and which is an illusion. <laughs>